0: So hi, and Welcome to this podcast with me, Gita Joshi. You're listening to the Curator's Salon. And today I'm talking to Barbara Segal. Welcome, Barbara.
1: Hi, Gita. Nice to be talking with you.
0: Thanks so much for making time. So I thought we would, um, let, let's start with your, how you came into your discipline because you're a stone carver. Did you call yourself stone carver or stone artist? I call myself
1: a stone carver and a contemporary artist. So I applied to L'Ecole des Beaux-Arts when I was 19 years old, and they told me I had to join a workshop. And upon walking into the stone workshop, the kids in the school there were so nice and wonderful to be with that I just said, okay, I'll do this. But I think it's an inherited discipline because my great-grandfather was a wood carver. So I think it's something you either love or you hate.
0: And then, so you were at Pratt before that, weren't you? At the Pratt Institute, you said. And that took you to the Ecole des Beaux-Arts. And then how much time did you spend in France after that?
1: I was in France for two years, studying with the professor. His name was Colamarini. And uh, then I went back to Italy, where I had gone with my school originally and moved to Santa, Car- Santa and then Carrara, Italy.
0: So, we, I know of Carrara because that's where some of the you know, best marble comes from. But where, where's Pietra Santa?
1: Pietra Santa is about 20 kilometers south of Carrara. The Alpinian range of marble mountains goes from Pietra Santa to Carrara and then back into the Alpinians north. So, I don't know, maybe five kilometers or so, 10
0: kilometers. So it's just that area of the world is just has some of the best marble then?
1: Well, they, the white Carrara marble is really quite amazing because of its, of its compactness and its color, and it's a beautiful marble to carve, and it holds all the points and all the edges, and it's consistent, and it's really fun. And it's also mostly pure calcium carbonate, so you can almost breathe
0: it. So when you were in Pietrasanta, what, what were you doing there? Were you at a workshop or an atelier? Well, I came, I
1: went and worked at a
0: workshop. Um, we called
1: them Laboratorios. And at first I was working at SEMS, which is a very famous marble studio who used to do the work and still does the work of Henry Moore and now Damien Hirst and many other well-known artists. But then after that, this was in 74, and, seven, and then I started working in Fonderia Tomasi. So I was in Pietrasanta altogether like a year and a half. And then I moved to Carrara. And so, everybody knows who Sam is. He was quite an interesting character to work with. Pietro in the early seventies was an amazing place to be because all the artists from all over the world would come there and hang out together in one location for evenings whereas now it's become more of a tourist destination. And the city used to be filled with workshops and artisans working every other store. was quite amazing. So um, I also, after working in the atelier carving stone, I then went for a year and worked in Fonderia Tomasi in Pietra Santa, casting bronze, as well as learning how to make molds. And then that was the work that you brought back or the skill set then you brought back to
0: the US. Is that right?
1: That's correct. When I came back to the States, Um, I got a job in Roman Bronze Works bringing rubber molds. And I believe I was the first woman to work there. I know that. And also bringing, teaching them how to make rubber molds. And that's a famous, that was the first foundry in New York.
0: So what were they using for their mold making before, if not rubber?
1: They were using a gelatin, gelatin mix, which was reusing what they had used before mixed with with um, a black goo and gelatin and they would just keep reusing this material and pouring it in over the casting the model over and over and over again and you can it doesn't last it breaks apart whereas the rubber molds last so what were you molding oh we were doing 20 foot sculptures of of george washington and I actually, there was a scandal in the 70s about these fake Remingtons that were being produced and I actually was told to make those. So my claim to fame is making a bunch of fake Remingtons and waxes, finishing waxes, working for very, very famous artists and cleaning up their waxes for the, lost, for the lost wax process.
0: So after that you went back to Carrara,
1: what were you doing there? Uh, When I was in Carrara, that was like 75, 76. I worked in a studio called SGF Studio Scultura in Toronto, above Carrara, with a young group of artisans and uh, many internet sculptors from all over the world, and we'd carve stone. And that particular laboratory also would make enlarged pieces for, for artists for anyone, but also some well-known people as well. It was an amazing experience, and I really learned there and watched there how to carve, how to enlarge, and all about, all about stone working.
0: All of this sounds like you were sort of working, you know, producing other people's designs and things like that. So at what point did you sort of evolve to, you know, making work of your own design? Well, actually, when
1: I was in Santa and in Carrara, I was doing my own work. That whole time, I was not working for other people. I was, but when I came back to New York and worked in the foundry and was trained in the skill, I was doing other people's work. So, and then I would sometimes freelance and work for other artists and do their work. But the time
0: I was in Europe, I was a student, but I was doing my own work. So, when did you then start producing work for galleries? Because now you're with what about six or seven galleries, aren't you?
1: I think it's um, four or five. Right. Um, yes, that's true. Maybe soon will be more. In 1985, I, my husband and I made the decision to, I should see, I should just work solely on my own work and see what happened. And very soon after, within the next couple of months, I got into a gallery in New York City. So I just, and I started
0: to sell. That's fantastic. And back then, sort of looking at some of your earlier work, you were making apparel, weren't you? There were clothes and things I've seen, like shirts and jackets.
1: Yes. Yes, I was. Yes. What, What was the
0: inspiration for that?
1: Well, basically a girl coming from suburban New York, going to Pratt, which at the time was in a terrible neighborhood, and then moving to Europe. When I walked into the cathedrals of Europe and saw the amazing architecture, the stacked stones, it blew me away. I was in awe over this not only just the architecture, but also the work of the, of the very well-known artists that we know. And I think the only connection that I had back in suburban America was my mother's clothing. I mean, she had Gucci shirts, and she wore the pedal pushers and her, and she had beautiful gowns and gems in the gowns. And so the only comparison between Renaissance Italy and suburban America <laughs> The cathedral floors was my mother's clothing. So I started to make my mother's clothing in stone.
0: Fantastic. And how was that received? Because was there anybody else doing anything like that?
1: At the time, no, because it was all inlaid and laminated and multicolored and constructed like the churches of Europe. And when I first got into the gallery, I showed them different work. And right after I got into the gallery, I decided to start making this apparel and they started selling right away. That's what started selling.
0: I didn't realize that, um, because I wanted to ask you about this, but I think you've answered it. You're saying that the work, you know, where you've got different colors and things, they're inlays on the... You know, the, the apparel sculptures, that's incredible.
1: Well, in the beginning, I kind of, uh, I was just, I just knew I could make a pinstripe shirt. That was my first idea. And I kept saying to myself, well, why should I make a pinstripe shirt? And I kept saying, nah, what's the significance? What does it mean? So I didn't make it. And then six months later, I went through the same thought process. And I said, no. And then one day I had time to do it. And I just did it. And I sold it like in two weeks. And I went, okay, I think an artist does get influenced by, by the market. But then I played. I played for the next five years, different ways of using the stone. All always autobiographical. It always had to do with my life. But as I moved ahead, it was, it was doing paint by number. You know, that's a childhood influence. Vassarelli optical illusion, having been at the Vassarelli Museum having feeling that you know my father died when I was 10 and that men were more powerful than women and doing two venuses on the naked on the inlaid on the outside panels of a man's tuxedo jacket you know so all of it looking back was very autobiographical but I was playing with what I could do in stone
0: in the early years so now I know you mostly for the handbags was there anything in between or I mean when did you move into then the accessories side of things Well, before
1: I moved to the accessory side of things, I went through a period of women's power and I went from carving and rebellion. I went from carving multiple pieces of stone together, which was very complicated and difficult to carving out of a solid block of stone. I made a motorcycle jacket, sort of my rebellion statement of, and just carving beautiful forms and shape, which was so different than piecing materials together. So after the motorcycle jacket and my rebellion stage, I went into more of a feminine stage of beauty and power, carving beautiful white marble fabric teddies with overlaid lace in bronze. So I used all my skills, but I was expressing my female wilds within them. I had a little break in there because it was so hard doing this work that I kind of veered off into uh, doing public art I did a huge bridge for the MTA Arts for Transit in aluminum. And I made also a sculpture park on the Hudson River for the city of Yonkers. And then in the back of my mind for 10 years, I always wanted to make little girls' dresses. And the reason for this was the photographs that we took as young people before my father passed away of the family of the children, dressed in, with puffy sleeves and you know 50s sort of nostalgic dresses. And I started to make those, and I still make those, and I make them. And, and they're also changing, too. I mean, I make my own blocks of stone. I, can blo- I combine different materials together, onyxes, marbles, and then I carve them. So um, there's been many different stages. So basically, my work is comprised of three elements. Design, that's the marble that I use, and the way that I use it. Inlay, lamination, and all of that. Nostalgia, that's the history of my life. And the third part element is popular culture, society. So the third part, the societal part, is the part of the Birkins. It originated because I wanted to do something other than the clothing, and I'm thinking accessories, and I thought, oh, I had this handbag, the Chanel-like handbag as a child. So it was sort of, and I didn't do it right away, but thinking, in thinking about it, it became more and more important to me that it held a lot of significance in, the culture, in our culture today. What is What does a pocketbook represent? I mean, what does a Chanel, what does a Hermes Birkin represent in society today? Who are we? Does it identify us? Yeah,
0: I think that, I mean, there's such uh, interesting pieces because I think they bring up a lot of, you know, questions around that, you know, around, well, obviously their iconic designs is one thing, but, you know, the aspirational side of them as well. You know, they're very... Um, aspirational items for a lot of people you know that these bags of that cost tens of thousands of pounds and probably you know cost more than your sculptures even yes many of them do yes some of your bags actually reference architecture as well and you use loads of different types of stones can you tell us more about that
1: well you know in my travels in Europe. Um, and I do go pretty much at this point every year. I'm always looking at the different towns and the different colors of stones that they use in their architecture. And I seem to be attracted really to the Renaissance architecture, the Romanesque architecture, the most. And depending on this town, depends on the colors that they use. For example, in Carrara, they use the whites and the grays. And in Tuscany, they use the darker grays. So I'm always looking for these materials that I could put them together. And, and I love to put architecture into my work. So the latest pieces that I'm doing, there are two pieces, and one is a um, Romanesque birkin where I'm actually stacking the stones of a particular region, and then I'm carving windows into the top part of it, making segmented arches like you see in the Romanesque church cathedrals in Europe. And so I'm making the comparison between this, this Icon- iconic... Imagery of the 21st century for women and status symbol with the idea of the importance of cathedrals in Europe and actually almost becoming godlike, a godlike item. So, as an
0: object of worship, type of uh, thing, or a place of worship, yeah.
1: So, it's almost like a place where we go to worship
0: rather than. Um,
1: just an item to carry our belongings in, mm.
0: especially certain iconic
1: uh, bags.
0: So where do you go to source your materials? Obviously, you said you spend a lot of time in Italy. I mean, I guess, are you on buying trips or do you use stones from other parts of the world as well? Well, I do go
1: to buy stone in Italy because all, much of the stone from the world goes there to be processed. So I can find stones from the region as well as fi- finding other stones from all over the world. I particularly like onyx, and I like the onyxes that come from Iran, but as an American I can't buy directly from Iran, so I have to go through Italy. I also find stones in the United States. I, there's a particular stone, a honey onyx that I really love that comes from Utah, and then there's a blue onyx that comes from the Andes. So. I learn always about new stones that I want to use, and i 'm always looking for new new stones that I could use.
0: What about sort of looking forward because I know more, uh, some of your recent work is really building on the work that you 've been doing recently with these with the architectural handbags um, and using slightly more precious stones. I think you mentioned in my last piece that i 'm working on now in the studio it 's a
1: blue onyx birkin where in the belt part of the the handbag, I am actually creating a piece of jewelry that replicates the jewels of the, of the kings and queens, or also the papal jewels. So I'm beginning to study the shapes of the cabochons, the stones that they used, gold, how they did it, and placing them on the bag
0: as making, again, a
1: comparison between contemporary times and another time
0: in history. So have you worked with uh, precious stones before? Because they are always, you know, always presented as very small items, whereas I can really consider your work to be quite large-scale pieces.
1: Well, it's a, that's a good question because it comes back to the idea of what kind of technique and craft do you have? I mean, because I was a mold maker and a model maker, I'm able to understand how to make things like make, what, make clay, lace, make a mold, cast wax, or bronze, and put it on my sculpture. In this case, with the jewels, because I have the experience in lost wax process, I understand how to make something in wax, cast it in gold, and then I can take a raw material gem, and I can cut it myself, and I can shape it myself. So because I have all of this experience, I'm able to put it into my work. So not only is it nostalgic, you know, but it it, it enhances what it is
0: I'm trying to say. So talking about your process, I mean, do you do everything by hand?
1: Well, originally for the 41st years of my work, everything I did was cut by me, always sometimes with help of assistance. And now what I do is I have a roughing out process that I do, so before the work gets to me, I do use a CNC to rough it out, but then everything comes back to my studio in New York and it takes me two to four months to finish everything or, or create the blocks, which I have to build first, and then do all the fine detail work and adding all the jewels and the polishing of the piece.
0: So how many pieces are you able to produce in a year then? That sounds like you know, quite a slow and labor-intensive work.
1: Well, originally it was two to three, and now I would say it's about six to seven. A year. But it's also helped in me focusing on being able to do things that maybe I couldn't do before. So it sort of gives me a new way to look at things, which is kind of very exciting as an artist that I can now not have to worry about removing a lot of material and taking months doing it that I can focus more on putting the blocks together of all different colored stones because those they can't, I have to do that myself or making jewelry for my pieces, or other aspects of the work that I can now add to the work that I couldn't do before. And it's also refreshing as an artist to be doing new things. Of course. The difference between now and then is or it's really the same thing. Today, we have artists who have 100 people working for them, 50 people working for them. They don't touch their work. Back in the Renaissance, there were big studios and artists produced work for the, for the, for Hundreds of pieces for their cities, like Bernini, like you know Leonardo da Vinci, like all of these, Gherlandai, like all of them, and they roughed out the work for them. So it's really the same tool that we had during the Renaissance that we have today, that we have at our hands today. Also, what's interesting to me is that I have a studio. I'm training students. I'm training people who work for me. So I really feel connected to that period, the Renaissance. It's not like I'm having other people do the work for me. I'm leading the studio and it's
0: coming out of my studio. But the Renaissance, I mean, you know, that's as in it just means, right? Rebirth of, you know, this sort of creative energy and all of that, which is kind of, I feel like that's what we're experiencing now with new technologies and everything emerging so quickly, you know, it makes sense to be incorporating that into your, well, into your process if it's, you know, for it to be contemporary in that way, because your material is so associated with, history in so many ways anyways.
1: Yeah, I find it all very interesting. I love using new technology. I, I love to incorporate it into my work. I love to be contemporary as I can and yet bring in the history of what's, what's been done. I mean, the stone itself is how old? A million years old, and that's part of it too. Did you, where did you say you teach, in New York or in Italy? I teach stone carving. I've been teaching stone carving for over 20 years at um, the School of Visual Arts. Just two classes a semester. Now I'm just doing one class in the fall. Also, I've been, I been—I just started teaching at the New York Academy. It's a master program in New York. It's the only master accredited program in New York State, I think, or maybe in New York City. And I love working with these students. They're from all over the world. There's only, it's a small class, but I love it because they want to learn this method and they want to learn how to carve. And it's a very difficult and time-consuming process, and most people cannot do it. And it's wonderful to be able to pass along what I know to a new,
0: different generation. Do you find um, students that come to you already come with some degree of experience? Well, at this school, they have a lot of experience in figurative work.
1: So they know probably at that point more about the figure than I know. They have experience in sculpture and modeling, but they really don't have experience in taking away in the negative process. So, and also the copying process, they, they've never done that. So it's, it's, it's something very important that used to be taught in schools that is no longer taught in schools, because taking away is very different than adding on. And it makes you think a whole different way and gives you a whole different, other experience of thinking and this evolves into a whole other world of work
0: so a lot of what you're teaching did you say that this is what you were learning when you were based in Italy did they have like different techniques and things or did you find it was quite different what you learned in Italy to what it was in France
1: well you know when I was in France I was a student I mean I was just working there was really no there was not much teaching going on I think in Italy I watched and I worked with artisans and I saw what they were doing and they helped me. So I learned more, much more in Italy working in the mountains in Carrara than
0: I, than I learned as a student in Paris. And is that the sort of thing that you then now are teaching to your students in the US?
1: Well, I think what I'm teaching them is everything I learned over all the years. But basically, I have to teach them the basics. All of the knowledge that I've acquired over 45 years put into a 15-week course as far as we can get because obviously I can't teach them inlay and lamination and you know I just teach them the basics of copying and using their
0: eye and different methods. So you know like I said you, you know the work is now kind of taking a different direction being more embellished with um, the precious stones where, where do you see this work going or you know what's next for you?
1: You know I seem to work from idea to idea, so I'm still sort of stuck in these bags. But I am influenced when I see certain things. So what happens to me is I'll see something, and before I have an idea, I'll I'll be inspired by something I see, and then I'll put that into an idea later on. So, for example, I was just in Verona, and I saw the red and white striped Romanesque cathedrals and buildings. And I just fell in love with it. And I'm thinking, okay, I want to make a Birkin using thin striped red and white material, marble. But this time I want to become even more abstract. Whereas like in those buildings, the towers pop out, the, the segmented arches, the flying sort of kind of, they're not flying buttresses. But just those segmented arches which are all over the building, where else can I use them? What kind of towers and, and campanile can I put on these bags? So my brain goes there. What do they mean to me? I don't know that yet.
0: That's amazing. I look really look forward to seeing how that unfolds then. So where can people find you online, Barbara? Well, they can find me online at
1: www.barbarasegal.com or they can go to my Instagram, Barbara Siegel, spelled the same way.
0: That's brilliant. Thanks so much for making time to talk to me today, Barbara. It's been great. Thank you, Gita, so much. It was so lovely to talk to you.